technology trap. Yep. Yeah. You you make your own future. But this Sunday, you know, it's a it's been a little bit different for me because I normally get here and I have some time in my office to sort of settle and refocus on the study I've done all week. And this morning, uh, not not really at all. Um, uh, and so I have all my insight and stuff I've gained over the week, but it's organization within me that seems to be failing. Um, and so <laughs> what I'm going to do is 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 let's see. And uh, I'm going to just put an end sort of on this. Actually, that clock isn't working, so we'll be here all day. <laughs> 10.27. Um, I was like, oh, so I'll just go for 20 minutes and then I will never move. Um, uh, so I'll just put an end on the sermon as we go, uh, just because there was a lot going on today. The chairs weren't in here yet. The, the stuff hadn't been hooked up. We had to pull everything in. So it was a bit of, and then the basement's flooded, so don't go down there. So busy day, fun day. Um, the life of a pastor um, is is where we're at. So, but this is the story, and this is the final of the seven signs that we've sort of been looking at. In in typical sort of in the liturgical calendar, the season that ends the season before Lent is called Epiphany, and it's bookend by Jesus' baptism, in which you hear at the beginning, "This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased." And you always read at the end of that season from Jesus' transfiguration, that voice sounds from heaven again, "This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased." And the lectionary does that through its text and its chosen things, and it gives a nice sense to what the season of epiphany and revealing is for you. If you're not familiar with that, it's a great way to sort of walk through the story of Jesus uh, and to sort of learn and to see. The problem for the lectionary is they don't, uh, Matthew is year A, uh, Luke is year B, and Mark is year C, or maybe I've got that messed up. So John is just shoved into random places. You never really get a time if you're in a, a church that follows selectionary and reading the gospel reading to appreciate the gospel of John and its character and witness, that John has these other scenes. So John, as many of you know, has no transfiguration scene. It, it, it's argued that he is baptized by John. He says, look, this is the one who takes away from the sins of the world, but the baptism scene doesn't look like the baptism scene in the synoptic gospels. And so part of the challenge has been as a church who tries to sort of walk with the Jesus part of the year that sort of begins in Christmas and reaches its climax in Easter, is to adapt the Gospel of John to that isn't as easy as you would think, because there's all these scenes that, that don't help make up that. But what I think the Lazarus scene does for us, the scene of this resurrection of the unbounding of death, is it actually can function in a way the transfiguration is. It's this last of the seven sort of peak signs of who Jesus is and how he's revealed. And after the scene, we didn't read it, but they, they sort of then decide that they must kill Jesus because of this. Uh, Caffius gives this great sermon where he says, it's better that one man die than a whole nation die. Which is, when you read it as a Christian on the other side, it's like, yeah, that's the point. It's better that one person die so that we can all raise with him. Um, but he's saying it in sort of a pragmatic way. It's better that we kill this guy than we all get destroyed. And so this scene has that same, in the transfiguration scene, there's this confession that Jesus is the Son of God right before it in the synoptic Gospels. And it's also the scene that pushes Jesus towards the cross, going closer and closer towards the cross. And so what happens here, this is sort of the last scene. There's one more scene after this where Jesus sort of wanders the countryside and preaches and teaches. The Gospel of John turns after this to him talking to his disciples and then his trial and his crucifixion and his death and resurrection. But the other thing that's great about this scene 
And, and that's all um, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock from 7 to 7.30. We'll have a short Ash Wednesday service here that starts the next part of this Jesus journey together. And so if you look at some of the Gospels, you can kind of structure them in this way where it's Jesus' story is this yes to humanity. It's this yes to miracles. It's this yes to reconciliation. It's this yes to being with people. And then there's other half of this Jesus story that is about cross. It's about dying to self. It's about um, resurrection, but also about the pain and the trials that come when God comes near to us in earth. On earth. And so what we do as we take every year and decide to walk with the gospel basically from the first Sunday of the new year to Easter is we try to do half of it in that in that let's go around the countryside, take boating trips with my friends, feed lots of people, get accused of having being a glutton and a drunkard, and tell crazy parables. That's what we do in the first half. And then the second half of, of when we walk through that gospel, we try to focus on the scenes where he he sort of sets his face and himself towards Jerusalem towards that moment of his crucifixion. And so starting on Wednesday is where we sort of make that turn in our lives. And so that's generally considered in the church a season of, of fasting and repentance and, and resetting ourselves. Uh, uh, it has the sense of almost a spring cleaning with it as we approach spring, although allegedly today we approach spring, um, this sort of spring cleaning for our souls. Um, it's this time where we can take up some practices and you'll, you'll know, many people know, how long is Lent? And as anybody, some of you are, are from liturgical snobby traditions, you always sit in the back, too. So back rows exempt. Um, how many days are actually in Lent? Forty like six. The Sundays don't count. So if you're fasting from something on, on the regular days, you actually can, can partake on Sunday because Sunday is always a feast day. It's always a day. We celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. And it's always a reminder for us when we pick our fast for Lent, it's, it's hard to pick something which is sin because you can't feast on sin, right? Like people are like, I'll give up this sin in my life, but that doesn't work with the logic of it. So if you want to give up the sin, I encourage you, that's a good time to start. Um, <laughs> don't feast on the feast days um, and, and then use that as the impetus towards holiness. But it's actually more about sort of restructuring your life so that you can you can focus in some ways. So we know if you grew up in a Catholic area, it's fish in the cafeteria on, on, on Fridays, every Friday for this season, despite whether you're Catholic or not. And what happens is, and, and you're like, that's weird legalistic Catholicism, which it can be interpreted that way. And for many Catholics, that's basically the gist of it. But actually the abstention for me, classically in Christianity, was there to, to allow you to save money to give alms to the poor. Um, it was allowing you to, to sort of store up, to give away more. And so you may find something in your life where it's like, I spend a lot on X, Y, or Z, and maybe I could take that money over these 40 days and give that money to some other cause worthy of, of digging a well or something like that. So that is the introduction to Lent, which you can come Wednesday from 7 to 7.30. But as we can see, it's wise I've set a timer on this already. Um, so this is the last of the seven signs, though. And so the story starts with, with the disciples or, or servants of Mary and Martha coming to, to Jesus. And they say, the Lord whom you love, the one he whom you love is ill. And it's like one of these scenes where it's like if you've been following the Gospel of John, it's like, okay, Jesus is going to go there and make him well. This he whom you love is ill is an interesting one, too. As many of us I know, the beloved disciple plays an interesting role in John's Gospel, and it's never quite named. And so one of 
one of the theories is that he whom you love is the beloved disciple. Lazarus is the beloved disciple who's unnamed sort of throughout the Gospel of John. But he whom you love is ill, which you would think would put Jesus in motion. But as we've walked through the seven signs, uh, what does Jesus say to his, his mom when it's time to turn water into wine? As we've learned, uh, I think some kids have been practicing that. <laughs> what do you say when it's time to clean your room? My time is not yet come. Woman, my time hasn't come yet. <laughs> so yet you. Uh, yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, Jesus in all these signs has this way of sort of resisting the agenda that people place on him. He, he sort of waits for the Father's timing for these things to work out. He waits that God, the one he knows his father, will reveal himself and draw him into these moments when it is. And so it's interesting that even when one whom he loves is ill, he still waits for that moment. So not only that, he, he talks about how this is also a sign that might reveal his glory to people, that they might see something in him. And so you think, well, Jesus would go for a friend, but even there, he sort of waits and goes on the time in which God has given him into this um, is one of my favorite insights from Augustine on the back of the bulletin, is that they did not say come, but only, Lord, behold, he whom you love is ill, as if to say it is enough that you know, for you are the one that loves, you are not the one who loves and then abandons. That was a powerful sort of, it's enough in our pain to let God know, because God is not the one who loves and abandons is interesting for us to think about is that that sometimes I think in my own life in my own pains and trials it's like I need to keep reminding of God of this I need to keep making sure God knows what I need in this but what they say is Lord he whom you love is ill and it can teach us that that once God knows once we've brought God to the place of, of knowing our illness he's not the one to leave us and abandon us which is why um, abide with me is such a powerful song today it's that God abides with us when these other helpers fail, and these comforts flee. But God abides near us, and so, and so that we can sort of trust in that God is not one who loved or set us or freed us to abandon us in the moment of crux. And so they call Jesus to him, and Jesus sort of responds that he'll be there in his own time. He'll be there when he's meant to be there. And so he takes his time sort of getting there. He sort of delays purposely along the way. One of the things he says to the disciples is, is he's, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Disciples are very literal people, I've found out. And so they go, oh, that's great. That means somebody can wake him up. Um, and we don't need to go to the place where you'll die. And what Jesus says to them is that no, Lazarus has died. Now, I don't know where, where this insight came from, but it's, but it's always powerful for me to think that for Christians, for those who know Jesus, that, that for death is like sleep to them. You know, like for, for Jesus, death, the power in which we mainly fear and do our best to push the margins of all our lives, whether it's, whether it's in homes or moving people away, or just like we don't see, um, minus Sylvia and Matt, we don't see the butchering of animals as much anymore. Like all the things that point to death have been moved to the margins of society. People don't die in your house anymore generally. People don't die near you. Most people reach my age, um, and the number of people I know who have died, if I weren't a pastor, wouldn't fill up both hands. It's just unique for the history of the world. We just continually push death off. It's a, it's a giant fear. But, but the point in the, the Isaiah passage talk about this, that we miss 
is that there's this cloud of death that's lifted from the world when the Messiah comes. That Jesus is one who takes up the cloud of death. And it was funny, most of you know, or who were here last Sunday, it was my birthday last Sunday. And I think I'm at the age where I'm caught between the two parallels of this message, which is one, Jesus heals and raises Lazarus. That is the good news of what Jesus does in his body. And yet, what the second quote on the back of the bulletin points out is that Lazarus will die again. And we exist in that tension, you know. When, when you're younger, you think, hey, Jesus conquers death in the grave, and that gives you the power to go through life. And as you get older, you begin to think, but Lazarus dies again. And how does this point beyond the grave? It points to those deeper truths. This is the discussion he has with Martha. This is, but as, as you get to that, that phase in life, and like I'm not that old, so maybe I'm being a little dramatic, but you can imagine if I was older, you, you begin to think about these things differently, you know, um, that, that there's also this point in which he will die again. He's been restored, and yet death comes again. And so we have both those things sort of pointed to us in this story, is that, is that we have both Jesus who raises up Jesus who restores, Jesus who brings back to life, and yet death still knocks. He is still to die. And how do we participate that in that as Christians? How do we live into that life? And so Jesus here begins to make his way back to Judea, and Thomas says, you know, we'll go with you and we'll die as well, which of course is like not going to happen. They all flee from him when he's captured later in the gospel. But what's interesting about the start, sorry, is, is, is that John points out that this is Mary who anoints Jesus, which is actually seen that happens after this chronologically in John's gospel. What's within the Lazarus story is this moment of, of also Jesus's passion and death and resurrection. So if you read this story thinking, it's just about this thing, we've talked about with the signs already. The signs point to the thing beyond. The signs are there as illustrations on the screen to help you capture what else is coming. So if death is like sleep, as Jesus thinks of Lazarus, what does it mean for himself as he goes towards his death, towards his rest, and to his rising as well to where, where God says at the tomb, Jesus come out instead of Lazarus come out, that he, he becomes vindicated in that moment. And so Jesus goes near to the town of Bethany, Martha comes out to talk to him, and she says, Lord, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened, but I know that all things can happen for you in some way. She, she, she has both sort of this commendation towards him uh, and this criticism of him at the same time. If you were here, this wouldn't have happened, and yet we know that God is with you, that God is near to you, that, God, that, that you can still do things here. And it's weird as, as you follow Martha throughout the story, it kind of transitions because she gets it and doesn't get it all at the same time. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise. And she says, yes, I know that on the last day, he too shall rise and all the righteous will rise. This is a, is, this is a common Jewish belief at the time that there will be a general resurrection of the dead. That all the dead will rise. This is this common thing at the time. Now, there are people who reject it and they show up in the Gospels a couple times. The Sadducees say that that's not the way it but the Pharisees and most Jews at this time believe that there will be a general resurrection that all people will rise. Going back to the point on, on death for a moment is that, 
is that what Jesus does is he brings out the body. Many of you know I'm a snob about how we do burial practices in America. Um, uh, I think that you know we we just you know put me in ashes and sprinkle me here, here, and here, and here. And Jesus, when he meets Martha with this lament, could have had the option of being like, "Look, you know, his soul will be with me someday. His body is just disheveled. What are you so hung up on?" And yet Jesus calls out a body from the tomb. Paul, in most of the New Testament, is very obsessed with this idea that we raise from our graves when the trumpet sounds. The tomb is rolled away. Death in our world also shows up in that way in which we our best way of dealing with it is to pretend like this is all that doesn't matter. Jesus, Martha, you know I'll bring his personality back and soul and presence to be with you. He could have answered. Well, he couldn't have because that would be wrong. What the Christian hope is, is in the raised in a new world, a new creation. Something much beyond just sort of like, this doesn't matter. Can God restore that which has been disregarded in our, in our death practices today? I don't doubt that at all. But I do think there's something about the care for the body that kept the church busy for almost 18, 1900 years. That they cared for the body at death. That they practiced full body burial. That they had moments of being with them. This is where my church shrinks. It's very expanded sanctuary, and that spoke about. <laughs> I don't. Um, I'm not a legalist on this, but I do think it's worth considering that Jesus calls out a body from the tomb. He doesn't just call out a soul and just tell her, "You'll meet up in the air together with me. You'll play harps all day." Which we can get into how that's a horrible conception of heaven too. So, um, another day. Um, but yeah, worth pondering. I think. Um, you know, that he calls out a body. He doesn't just say, well, th his soul will be with me. And so he calls forth this body, but he asks Martha, and, and she says, he asks her a question after she says, I believe in this, or he says to her that I am the resurrection and the life. There are seven I am's, as David referenced that last Sunday. Oh, there's two different seven I am's in John's gospel. One is that the, the I am, like I am, that is meant to remind us of Yahweh, and then there are seven I am the resurrection, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the light and the life. I am these things. These, these take up a role. And this is the one that we hear is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that those who believe in him may not die, and that those who die, don't they live in him. Which it's a very, in Greek, it's a very complex sentence. But the way it sort of pairs together is that Jesus is saying that those who are in him don't die again. Death is not the end for them. Death is maybe as sleep to them, in which they arise out of when Jesus says to come forth. And that those who are in him, alive in him, shall truly live. One of the things I mentioned earlier when we were talking about life is that this eternal kind of life that John's Gospel talks about, and it's, it's unique to John's Gospel. We think about eternal life a lot as modern-day Christians, but eternal life is very unique to John's Gospel, this idea that there's this eternal life that we participate in. What John's Gospel is always trying to say is it begins in the present. It begins now. We try to say eternal life happens when you die. But in John's Gospel, it's something you participate in the day in which you begin to want to move into that realm, to know Jesus is that way. And if you want to interlay sort of Paul's logic at the top of this, it's at your baptism you truly die. 
The worst thing that could have happened to you in your life happens to you when you are identified with Christ and his crucifixion and lowered into the watery tomb. And the best thing that could happen to you in your life is when that you are raised out of that watery tomb and into new life as a resurrection with him. So those two things correspond to that day of your baptism. And at that moment, you begin to participate in this eternal kind of life now. This eternal life that doesn't run out. This eternal life that fills us. This is what we get in our baptisms. This is what we get when we begin to know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Is that he is one who holds the power of, of, of death and the grave. And, and this is, it's, if you've been around Easter here, this is one of my favorite themes, just period, or if you've been around the church long enough, you're probably sort of wondering about this, is that in my early Christian life, it was very clear that like Jesus needs to forgive your sin. Jesus needs to be an institution, a moment of sort of substitutionary death in which he takes away the sins which you have committed. And that was deeply meaningful for, for a while for me. But then as I started to read, and if you look at church history, like the first thousand years of church history, certainly the bigger question is that Jesus conquers death in the grave is the stronger thing. That Jesus stomps out the powers of Satan. That Jesus is a victor, a conqueror over these things is actually the more prominent message. And so in me, in my life, as I sort of read the, the Gospels again and the New Testament again, the, the idea that Jesus forgives our sins is, is there and it's equally as important to me. But actually what it's pointing to is that those things no longer have power either. That God is the one who has disarmed them. That God is the one who has taken the keys to death and hell and raided those places and brought life out. Now hell is in the creed. Sorry, the, the darkest places, is the one in the Psalms who descends to the lowest places and rises to the highest places with the goal of bringing all things to reconciliation. And so this New Testament theme, which is pretty prominent about new creation, that God is going to restore all things, doesn't fit as well with just the forgiveness of sins. You need other elements of that. And this, again, is not to say that I'm anti that message. It's a powerful message. And it's one that's a powerful gateway for many people into the Christian life. It's one that, that can help transform the ways in which we understand our stories and our lives in powerful ways. But at times, I think there's when, particularly if, if, if we live more, if you live longer, I think, the idea that Jesus conquers death, that these things are, are faint things to him, becomes more meaningful in this reconciliation that God is going to do in the world. But she answers back to him, she believes, I believe you are the Messiah the Son of God, the one coming into the world. There are three sort of titles laid out here, I think, that fit similar to the transfiguration scene as we talked about earlier. That you're the Messiah, the one who's coming to reveal these things, or the Son of God, which is one of the first times he's really labeled this as somebody else in John's Gospel, and the one coming into the world. The one who comes into the world in sin and death and seeks to bring reconciliation out of it. This is one of the, the pivots of this scene, is that she proclaims this when he asks her, do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? And so they take him to the tomb. There's, there's two things that happen here, and it depends on what tra translation you have. Is Jesus is visibly shaken, um, is sort of the term, and it's, it's some, of, some translations, I forget which one you read today, will say he's deeply moved, and other translations will say he's agitated. Um, and this agitation leads to this phrase that Jesus wept, which every Sunday school kid knows, Bible memorization day, 
pick the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Assignment done. Um, uh, but, but this, I think, is, is a powerful verse. And, you know, I was at a party with somebody, and this should be a note. Don't go to parties with Matt. Um, I was at a party talking to somebody, uh, and they were, somehow we were talking about Jesus wept, and they were like, well, we know why Jesus wept. And I was like, you know why Jesus wept? She's like, oh, oh yeah, uh, it's because they weren't believing in him, um, that he was surrounded by all this disbelief, and that caused him to leave. I was like, I mean, I'm not going to say that's not a good theory, but, like, we don't know why Jesus wept. There, there's no answer in the text that says, I mean, if he rebukes the people after he weeps, you would know that he's rebuking them for unbelief. But Jesus is weeping because he's surrounded by unbelief. But the text, the, the Bible doesn't answer for us the, the confidence that this person had. And it's like, it's clearly because he's ashamed of all these people he's surrounded by. Now, if you've watched any of sort of the superhero movies or some of these things, they have this notion that the villain always says, like, humanity stinks. Humanity is horrible. And there's always somebody on the other side, whether it be Wonder Woman or some godlike creature, who they're trying to say, like, why would you throw your lot with these horrible people? Why would you be with these people who build nuclear weapons and kill each other? You should join me, this new thing that doesn't stink, that doesn't live in the rotten death, and you should move into a different plane. This is, this is sort of the challenging, it's the villain of sort of Many of these movies has that notion. What I find interesting is that if Jesus is weeping because well, look at all these idiots, um, look at these people who just don't get it, it makes him much more like the villain in the superhero movies that I think I'm comfortable with. It makes him like the one of like, these guys, all I can do is stand here and shed tears because they aren't understanding what I'm about to do. Which is to say that that, that actually, like I said, I'm not sure it's the worst way of looking but I think that they're keeping disbelief too small in that category. Like, it's disbelief, it's the human's fault around him. But and, and not, like, that Jesus is weeping could actually be a result of all the disbelief, of all the pain and anguish, of all the death that rises to this one moment, of all that's separated from God. All that you could call disbelief. All that you could call God's frustration with humanity. Right? That you could say that leads him he could also weep, and in many of the early translators, they say he weeps because in Hebrews it says that he is like us and not unable to synthesize, uh, sympathize with us. He's one who faces every temptation. Jesus' friends die. He weeps like we weep at the tomb. Paul in Romans says to weep with those who are weeping. Is Jesus weeping with the common lot of humanity that weeps at tombs? Knowing that it's a faint thing, knowing that he's going to bring life out of this, Jesus weeps there. Or the, the, the definition of the tomb, the tomb with the stone in front of it. Is he weeping because of what's coming for him? That he too is going to bear this death. He too is going to go into the grave. He too is going to experience the alienation that comes at the end of a human life. Is he weeping because of what comes next? Jesus wept. There's a, you know, kids who use this as the memory verse, it's like, don't, don't hang out with Matt again, because I would love to talk to them about what they think about what Jesus wept. Does that break open in your own life that when God comes on earth, he sheds tears, he cries? See, this is where like, when I was a youth minister, it was like, they're always way smarter than you think you are. And they'll say the coolest, most interesting things if you ask them that question. 
Yeah, but what does it mean that God incarnate wept here on earth? I'm sure you'll get some remarkable answers if you follow that up the next time you ask kids to memorize uh, a Bible verse. And this is what happens next. This is I chose this from the King James because, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he has been there for been dead for four days. I always think of the King James as a noble translation, but stinketh does not hit it. For me. Um, <laughs> Uh, he's been dead for four days. The importance of this is the Jews had this idea that the body and the soul, they hang around together for about three days after he dies, the person dies. And so what happens is, is that this is beyond the time when you would expect any sort of resuscitation. Something's going to happen. Day four is the day in which there is all hope is lost. And yet Jesus shows up on day four. And the tomb stinketh. And, and this is the devotional point for today to sort of think about is if I've not laid out 40, because I didn't have time to organize my thoughts this morning. Death stinks, you know, a, a body stinks, a body decomposes. And when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, he's wrapped in the instruments of death. He's wrapped still in the things that close him. And people are told to help him get out of there so he can go home. In our lives, when we struggle with sin, when we struggle with the trappings of this world, when we struggle with just being here, there's the temptation to clothe ourselves and practice the patterns of sin and death. To clothe ourselves in what stinks. One of the things that we can hear in this story, it doesn't matter what your struggle is, it doesn't matter what your continual temptation is. Uh, this is this is St. Augustine's sort of interpretation of the story, is that, the, that Lazarus calls people out of that. And he says, we know that because we've seen it in our lives. Augustine talks about those who adulterate and those who drink too much, and this and that and the other. And it became an habituated sin for them. They had clothed themselves in death and locked themselves into the tomb. And it's interesting, Augustine separates out, like, you know, there are sins like, oh, we all make mistakes and we know they're wrong and we come back. He's like, that's, that's a different story. We'll talk about that another day. But in this story, he talks about those ones in which we become habituated to, in which the only answer is that we need a, a voice to call us out of these tombs and bring us back into new life. We need some sort of break in that. So the latter story points both to that day when Jesus will say to you, Merle, come out of your tomb. Matt, come out of your tomb. Sylvia, come out of your tomb. It applies to both that day when we will hear Jesus' voice and participate in the final reconciliation, the call of all things that Jesus calls us forth from the graves. It also points to today, which is this marvelous part about this, this section in the Gospel of John, is it's never about just the future. If Christianity were only a religion about the future, it would, your goal would be just to bite the bullet and, and frustrate through suffering in the present as best as you well, Christianity almost always calls out to is that in the present, God is doing something as well. God is willing to interrupt and interject and to heal your life in the present, too. It's not just that future day that you await. So Jesus, when he gets to the tomb, he says to Lazarus, come out. Come forth. Jesus is one who rolls back the powers of sin and death. He sees it, and he shows it here in the seventh sign. As we go forward, we'll walk sort of that path, in, 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 um, ideally, all the way through 
next Sunday until Easter, that path in which he is walking towards his own death as well. But that death will become known to us through his teaching and what he says to the disciples. And that, that on Good Friday or the Sunday before Good Friday, because people don't come to their Friday services anymore, um, is that uh, we'll, we'll hear of that death and that moment on the cross. And what Jesus displays here is that even there, the death has been pushed back and rolled back. Take off the clothes of death, take off that which stinks, so that he can go home. Let us pray. God, you are one who comes near to us in your son, Jesus. This doesn't lead you to recoil, to wonder how dumb and dense we are. It causes you to give life. We've heard of wine you've provided at a wedding. We've heard of the healing of an official son from a distance. How you've called forth a lame man to walk. How you fed 5,000 people bread. How you walked on water. How you healed a man blind from birth. And how you raised Lazarus from the dead. These seven signs point for us of the transfiguration or the transformation of the world that's undertaken in your son. We hear that death is not the end, that he, we who die may live, and that we who live, live in you. Eternal life and begins and extends from today. Our future is not determined by death. God, and may your tears come near to us. May your weeping be a sign for us that this frustration in the world is worth weeping over. Whether it's so much disbelief, so much pain, so much anger, so much violence, so much corruption, so much alienation, so many broken families, so many broken lives, that you too weep there. And it's for us to weep as well and to await what it means that you are the resurrection and the life who lives with the Holy Spirit and the Father now and forever. Amen.